Imagine this, you are watching TV in the evening or late night. Maybe it's a movie starring Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn, or a 1977 episode of Doctor Who, when suddenly something odd interrupts your viewing. Maybe it's a message directed at a cable company, or a man in a mask getting spanked with a fly swatter. Today I have two true stories of broadcast signal intrusions on the 175th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I hope everything is going well in your life. It's going pretty good for me. The weather here in Chicago is, well, wonderful. Couldn't be better. 70s and sunny. So, my computer of like 10 years or so crashed on me this week. Actually, it crashed last Friday, but it wasn't until Monday morning when I declared it dead. It was a Mac that I got from work when we replaced our computers with newer ones. Fortunately, I was able to get another one from work, but I really didn't get it going till late in the week. By Friday morning, I determined there would be no Coffee with Jeff episode this week. But then I remembered that I wrote a bit on the Mac's headroom incident a while back, and I was currently working on one for the HBO signal intrusion, and I thought, well... Together, those would make for an interesting episode, so that's what I did. Well, I'm going to get into it right away, because, well, I'm short on time, so let's go. Pour yourself a hot cup of joe, and I'll tell you about two times when someone broke into a television broadcast. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. 32 minutes past midnight Sunday morning, HBO viewers east of the Mississippi suddenly had their movie, The Falcon and the Snowman, interrupted with this silent message printed over color bars. Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way. Showtime movie channel, beware. The signal got weaker, then, after four minutes, the movie resumed. Spokesmen at the HBO Broadcast Center in Long Island are not saying how they got control of their signal back from the intruder, who may never be caught. On April 17, 1986, at a little after midnight, during a home box office showing of The Falcon and the Snowman, right after the film's opening credits, a message, words on a color bar test pattern, appeared on the screen. It said, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way. Showtime Movie Channel, beware. Who was Captain Midnight and why did he illegally jam HBO's signal with the strange message? And was he justified in doing so? To understand why this person did what he did, we need to go back to the early 1970s. You see, up till then, television had always been free in the United States. All one had to do was put up with commercials, editing, and the censorship required by the Federal Communications Commission. You see, the FCC determined that the public owned the airwaves, and therefore, they had to make sure those airwaves stayed within the standards that were determined, 
in their opinion, decent for family viewing. I think the basic theory was that broadcast signals were in the air, flowing into people's homes whether they wanted it or not. So if you had a TV, you had no control over what signals it received. So, in an act of parental guidance, the government decided that they had to make sure those signals were safe for everyone in the home. But there were many people who didn't want their films interrupted by ads, or edited for time or adult content. This was resolved in 1972 with something called cable television. It was called that because to get the signal into one's home, a cable had to be hooked up. Since it didn't use the public airwaves, it was at the homeowner's discretion whether they wanted to receive the signal or not. Therefore, it didn't have to follow the same standards as broadcast television. Cable companies could have programming with adult language and even show naked breasts. The first of these cable networks was called Home Box Office, or HBO. Now, while HBO and other cable stations like Showtime used wires to get the signal into the home, they used satellites to get the information to where it had to be, from the main office to the cable affiliates around the world. So those with home satellite dishes began to share the secret of how to tap into those satellite transmissions to get free cable TV. Even restaurants and hotel chains made use of this technology to distribute programming to guests without charge. And at this time, it wasn't illegal to do so. But as we know, corporate America doesn't like giving away anything for free, so HBO came up with a plan. They began to scramble their signals on the transmission end, and those signals would require descrambling when it was received. This began on January 15, 1986. What this meant for satellite dish owners is they no longer got HBO for free. They could still watch it, but at a cost. HBO offered a package for satellite dish owners. For $395, you could get a descrambler. But that wasn't all. It would also cost you a subscription fee of $12.95 per month. Many dish owners were not happy. Folks like the Satellite Television Industry Association began to protest. They urged the United States Congress to protect access to satellite transmissions. Personally, I don't know what logic they could have used to get the right to get cable TV for free, but apparently they tried. One man who wasn't happy was 25-year-old John R. McDougall of Ocala, Florida. If I understand it right, it wasn't the fact he had to pay that was the problem, it was the amount. Home subscribers paid a lot less than those with dishes, and he thought that was unfair. For about two years, McDougall owned McDougall Electronics, who sold satellite dishes and was doing really well. But suddenly, dish sales slowed to a crawl and his business suffered. I mean, one of the main benefits of having a huge dish in the backyard was free cable, but that seemed to have gone away. McDougall no longer had the money to advertise or even run his air conditioner. He said later, I have been watching the great American dream slip from my grasp. Unlike many people who say, well, life isn't fair, and then decide to pay or not to pay, John decided to be a modern-day Robin Hood and do something about it. Being an electronics engineer, he was able to get part-time work as an operations engineer at Central Florida Teleport. This was the company that was the uplink service to satellites. So it was there, at work on a Sunday night, April 27, 1986, at a little after midnight, that he made his protest known to the world, 
or at least to the eastern side of the United States. Pee-wee's big adventure had just ended, and just as the Falcon and the Snowman had started, John set up his SMPTE color bars and typed his message on a Microgen MG100 character generator. But before he started, he took a moment to think about it. He said later, I wrote good evening. I wanted to be polite. I didn't want to be vulgar or call them names or anything. That's not my style. The name he chose was Captain Midnight. This came from a film he had seen recently, the 1979 classic On the Air with Captain Midnight. John said the name just popped into his head. He aimed the 30-foot transmission disc towards the location of Galaxy 1, the satellite that carried HBO. The coordinates for the satellite were widely published in manuals and magazines. Moments later, the message was there for the whole eastern half of the United States to see, about 7 million subscribers. It was like an out-of-body experience, he said. It was like I was there, but I really wasn't there. I'll repeat the message again. It was Good Evening HBO from Captain Midnight. Twelve ninety-five a month? No way. Showtime, movie channel, beware. Hughes Communications, the company who owned the satellite system, first believed that this might be the work of a domestic terrorist and threatened to shut down HBO's satellite signal or alter the satellite's course. In an effort to overpower the hacker's signal, they increased the uplink transmission power from 125 watts to 2,000 watts. McDougall increased his signal to compensate. Fearing that the increasing power would damage the satellite, Hughes gave up. The message stayed on for four and a half minutes. When I shut it off, I really didn't know how long it had been on top of HBO. But that's when I started to feel very guilty, he said. I thought, oh my God, what did I do? That thought raced through my mind for the next 10 or 15 minutes as I reconfigured the teleport back to normal. The guilt really set in that night. I didn't sleep very well. The next morning, he toyed with the idea of turning himself in, but then he thought, probably no one noticed, so he went about his daily routine as normal. But people did notice. To his surprise, the story appeared on the news. It was even joked about by David Letterman and Johnny Carson. McDougall began to panic. I was devastated and so nervous with frustration, John said later. To be blunt about it, I never thought anybody would really give a damn except HBO. At work that night, he acted dumb, acting surprised as anyone else over what had happened the night before. On April 28th, HBO chairman Michael J. Futes urged the FCC to use all its investigative resources to capture Captain Midnight. This wasn't a jamming, but a jamming and replacement. And a fascinating one at that, said HBO spokesman Alan Levy. That's why you saw a lot of action on this case. We understand that dish owners are at odds with the programmers. But when you escalate it to this point, it gets a little wild and woolly. And when you break into the satellite system of the United States, it's very serious. The FCC first determined which teleport uplink sites of the 2,000 licensed transmitters in the United States had the capacity to override the HBO signal. This brought the number down to about 580. Then, based on the recording of the transmission, they determined what kind of generator was used to create the message. That narrowed it down to 12. McDougall became one of three prime suspects. 
Now there was the phone call. This is part of the story I'm still not sure about. Apparently, an accountant from Wisconsin who was in Florida had overheard someone bragging about the incident on a payphone in a rest area off Interstate 75 in Gainesville. He was able to obtain the braggart's license plate number. Some reports say this plate was that of McDougal's car. Some say it was a customer of his taking credit for his act of protest. I can't really be sure either way, but from everything I've read, it doesn't seem to be something that McDougal would have done. But eventually the feds did move in and arrest McDougal. For a while he thought that they didn't have enough evidence and he was going to fight it. But his lawyers convinced him to plead guilty, which he did. He basically received a slap on the wrist, which was a $5,000 fine, and was put on unsupervised probation for one year. He also had his amateur radio license suspended for a year. In an interview with Network World in 2011, McDougal said, I do not regret trying to get the message out to corporate America about unfair pricing and restrictive trade practices. That was the impetus for what I did, the reason I jammed HBO. That's the reason I sent them a polite message. What I do regret is I was young and fairly naive in the ways of the media. I didn't grasp the fact that no one understood my motives and everyone would make assumptions. He also said, Being Captain Midnight was just one day in my life 25 years ago. I can't do anything about it now, but it's not how I live my life. Now, about a year and a half later, another signal intrusion occurred. And to this day, no one has ever been caught. It was a bizarre incident that happened on November 22nd, 1987, and is known as the Max Headroom Broadcast Signal Intrusion. Before I get started on this one, for my younger listeners, I want to talk about who Max Headroom was. Max was a fictional character played by Matt Frewer as the world's first computer-generated TV host. He was sort of a pop culture thing. However, the dirty little secret of Max Headroom was that he wasn't computer-generated at all, but was a man made up to look like he was. Back in 1987, the technology just wasn't there yet to computer-generate a human being. He first appeared in 1985 in a British-made cyberpunk TV movie, Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future. Then he hosted music videos as a VJ in a British music video program, and finally a TV series based on the movie. But the Max Headroom incident is something altogether different. One night on November 22, 1987, the Chicago local 9 o'clock news on WGN was interrupted during the sports by a strange vision. First, the screen went black for about 15 seconds. Then a person wearing a Max Headroom Halloween mask and sunglasses in front of moving corrugated metal, which imitated the electronic background effect used in the real Max Headroom, appeared on the screen. It only lasted 25 seconds before WGN engineers were able to cut it off. Well, if you're wondering what's happened, <laughs> so am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news from time to time took off and went wild. So what we're going to do is start over from the top of the Bears and tell you once again about the 30-10 to 10 victory they had over Detroit today out at Soldier Field. That's strange enough, right? 
But then, three hours later, something happened on Chicago's public broadcasting channel, WTTW. They were showing a Doctor Who episode late Sunday night, and it was interrupted. The episode was the horror of Fang Rock starring Tom Baker when that masked person cut in once again, and this time he talked. I'll get you a hot drink, man. Now I'm not going to play the whole thing. It's very hard to listen to. And it makes less sense without the visuals. And it's all over YouTube if you want to see it. In fact, I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. Now Max appeared to say, That does it. He's a freaking nerd. I think I'm better than Chuck Schwarsky. Freaking liberals. Oh, Jesus. That's followed by a bunch of moaning and unintelligible talk as he picks up a Pepsi can. He says the word, Catch the waves as he throws the can. And then he sings... Your love is fading. After a few moments of him humming the clutch cargo theme, he points and says, I still see the X, which was apparently referring to an X-Files episode. There's some more moaning and shaking before he says, Made a giant masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds. Picking up a rubber glove, he says, My brother is wearing the other one. After putting the glove on, he continues, But it's dirty. It's got blood stains on it. He removes the glove and throws it away in disgust. The whole thing lasts about 90 seconds, with the man being spanked in the bare butt with a fly swatter at the end, presumably by a woman in a dress. Seriously, you have to see this to believe it. Now, the way the technology worked at the time was the TV studio would beam its signal from the studio to the transmitter site, which was high on top of a building. WGN's was the John Hancock Center, and WTTW's was the Sears Tower, which is called the Willis Tower these days. From there, the signal was broadcast all over Chicagoland. So it is thought that the people responsible went up to a rooftop that was between the studio and the transmitter. They overpowered the studio's signal with a transmitter of their own. They probably did the first one at one rooftop and then traveled to a second rooftop to do the second one. An investigating FCC engineer quoted at the time said that the people responsible faced a maximum fine of $10,000 and up to a year in prison, or both. There are many people out there who claim to know they know who actually did this. I read one where somebody was at a party and overheard two people talking about what they were going to do that night and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if anybody really knows. In an article on mental floss, they put significance on the fact that the perpetrator was wearing a Max Headroom mask, and the actual Max Headroom show took place in a dystopian future where an evil media corporation controls the world. And of course, the fake Max Headroom made a reference to WGN, which is the world's greatest newspaper. So were the hijackers trying to make some sort of a point, or were they just having a bit of fun? Maybe they were just doing it because they could or wanted to see if they could do it. Who really knows? But the thing is, they were never caught and no one's ever admitted guilt. My thought is, it's been more than 30 years and the statute of limitations has all but passed. 
they can't be convicted for any crime, so it's time for them to come forward, because as far as I'm concerned, it was brilliant, and they should be congratulated. I thought the whole thing was exceptionally funny. And here's why. It was a prank that didn't hurt anybody. Not really. There was nothing that offensive except for that guy getting spanked by a fly swatter. But the following day, both stations put procedures in place preventing this from ever happening again. These fellows broke into a broadcast for 90 seconds and taught TV stations that they were vulnerable. Imagine if a terrorist or somebody with evil intentions had done the same thing, with far worse consequences. So I tip my hat to you, mysterious pranksters, whoever you may be. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. Starting first on WGN-TV at 9.14 Sunday night during a sportscast. 12 quarters finally did. Take some pretty sophisticated uh, microwave equipment operating in the broadcast uh, auxiliary frequency bands and, uh, and a significant amount of power. About two hours later, the video pirate struck again. This time, the target was a science fiction broadcast on PBS affiliate WTTW. And this time, it wasn't 25 seconds long. It ran for almost a minute and a half. By this time, the pirate had managed to insert audio as well, along with a display of a marital aid and a portion of his or her anatomy. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. There will be no follow-up today as I'm in a bit of a hurry, so I'll get right to the ending credits. No, we at PsyCon could really use a few of your dollars. Why don't you be one of the good people and support us by visiting PsyCon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M. And look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find many amazing podcasts. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would love you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You will always have a special place in my heart. Barring another computer failure, I'll be back in two weeks with something entertaining. With Jeff.
coffee with Jeff. Coffee, no coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, no coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee.